if your question is a question that comes out of environmental history, then the question is, to what extent has the natural world been manipulated or altered or transformed by human activity? If that's the question, then I think the most surprising thing I learned from writing this book is that the water border has actually been far more manipulated than the land border has. Even if you include the current day barrier infrastructure projects, it's easy to point to the land border because that kind of infrastructure is so highly visible. It's meant to be visible. But if you look at the flow rate, the water composition in terms of chemicals or salinity, if you look at the actual length of the river, if you look at all the flood control projects, what you will find is that there really isn't a single cubic inch of that 1,200 mile stretch of water border that hasn't been in some way altered by human activity. My name is CJ Alvarez. I'm a historian of the US-Mexico border and environmental history. And I wrote a book called Borderland, Border Water, A History of Construction on the US-Mexico Divide. If you were to take a snapshot of what is today the US-Mexico border region from the 1820s, let's say, when it was still under Mexican control, you would find a series of deserts on the land border that are coherent ecoregions in terms of their flora, in terms of their geomorphology, in terms of their average rainfall. And those ecoregions of the deserts more or less corresponded to population groups, some indigenous, some Mexican settlers that went that far north. And then you would find a river, the Rio Grande, starting all the way up in what's today Colorado and then draining down in the Gulf of Mexico. And that river would have been pretty much wild and free, like without any big storage dams, without any big water diversions to commercial agriculture. There's certainly people growing things always along rivers, especially in drylands. But that's what the landscape would have looked like. And then you start to see when the U.S.-Mexico border is decided upon, mainly by the Americans who had invaded Mexico in 1846, 1847, they decide this is where the border is going to be. We're going to use the Rio Grande as an arsifinious frontier, just a ready-made natural boundary, which of course the Texans already had claimed for themselves a decade earlier. And then we're going to draw this proverbial line in the sand on the Western boundary. And that line is going to go through multiple eco-regions that were once coherent spaces, but and still are coherent spaces, but now had this political boundary drawn within them. And then you see the first building projects, which is really small scale. They're just survey markers to delineate, all right, where exactly is this border? The durable ones go up in the 1890s. Then you start to see roads kind of being built around the U.S.-Mexico border, mainly for patrols during the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s. And so it's not the border being built, but it's this kind of transportation infrastructure around the border for the first border patrols. So the strip, the zone around the international divide is starting to become more developed. Then you get the first long 
big border fence in the late 1940s, which was mainly a stock fence to prevent animals from coming across who were infected with foot and mouth disease. Over 200 miles, mainly on the land border. Then in the 50s and 60s, you start to see big storage dams being built on the international divide. First, Falcon Dam down in South Texas and Northeast Mexico, and then Amistad Dam between Coahuila and Texas. And only then in the 1990s and 2000s do you start to see big fences being built. But at the same time as you see big barriers being built on the U.S.-Mexico border, you also have a new road system being built to connect the two countries. Because if you remember back to the 1990s, it's not only this era of this kind of new anti-immigrant sentiments, like we need to fortify the border, but it was also the era of NAFTA. And to connect Mexico and the United States together for the purposes of trade, they had to build tons and tons of roads. So that's the long arc of building projects on the border. And one of the most important points that I try to make in that long arc is that it's not just about building projects going from nothing to something. At a certain point in the second half of the 20th century, you start to see this phenomenon that I call compensatory building. And that is building projects that are designed to mitigate the side effects and the unintended consequences of previous building projects or previous policy. So if you have an immigration policy that influences the path that migrants take across the border, the solution historically has been not to modify immigration law to eliminate the demand to go through unauthorized parts of the border. The solution is to build more, to build a fence out there, to build more surveillance, to try to respond to any and all policy problems with more construction. Similarly, with the water projects, you see another form of compensatory building, which has to do with mitigating environmental consequences, specifically salinity. So when you start to dam and channelize and do all sorts of river projects, you start to change the water quality. And sometimes water runs from Mexico to the United States, and sometimes it runs from the United States to Mexico. And in both directions, we see that people historically had problems by the 1970s and beyond with water that had too many total dissolved solids in it to be productive for agriculture on either side of the border. So then they build these huge desalinization projects and drain projects, etc. What people think of, I think most frequently, is that the main idea of the U.S.-Mexico border must have to do with control in one way or another. And I think that's largely right, but I think that it's important to distinguish between what exactly you're trying to control and to what end. And it's important also to distinguish between the land border and the water border. Most of the kinds of construction projects we've seen on the land border have been geared toward controlling the movement of people, but historically more animals, potentially infected animals that they didn't want to cross the international divide. But the concept of control on the water border, on the Rio Grande, specifically with respect not only to those huge storage dams that I mentioned, but also the other smaller hydraulic engineering projects, they produce power, but not a ton. They manage discharges for agriculture. And that's an important dimension. But the main reason why a lot of the hydraulic engineering projects that happened on the water border did happen on the water border was to control 
floodwaters was to control an unpredictable and at times very, very dangerous river. And as the 20th century unfolds, and as more and more people from both Mexico and the United States move to the border and build entirely new border towns, or move to border towns that had been there in a couple of cases for hundreds of years, but expand them dramatically. And I'm thinking of Ciudad Juarez and El Paso and Matamoros in particular. You heighten the danger of flooding because there's just more people and more property and more crops and more people clustered very tightly against the river, which of course had been decided was also the border. And so the goal of those water projects was to keep people from dying in floods, which they had for a really long time as the river overflowed. Unlike the fencing projects, which were very unilateral, spearheaded by the United States, the river engineering projects, because they were on the river and the border was in the middle of the river, more or less, those building projects had to be carried out by both the United States government and the Mexican government. So if you go to Amistad Dam, for instance, there's this big American Eagle statue and there's a big Mexican Eagle statue. And what it represents is not just the United States and Mexico, but the fact that half the dam is in Mexico and half the dam is in the United States. The dam was designed by Mexican engineers in conjunction with American engineers, half Mexican workers, half American workers, and so on and so forth. And so there is this collaborative, consensual dimension to those projects that people don't often think about when they think of the U.S.-Mexico border as the site of tension between the U.S. and Mexico. Both governments were interested in mitigating risk of floodwaters to both sides of the border because when the Rio Grande floods, it doesn't know which country it's, you know, it's flooding into. Pretty much everybody when they talk about the border, they make the point of saying, well, look, it's arbitrary. You know, nature doesn't care where political borders are. And then we all just keep talking about political borders and keep using political borders as our basis of analysis. And so the most common response, without a doubt, that I get from people is, oh, you've got a book about the U.S.-Mexico border. That's so relevant right now. But of course, for me, having grown up near the border and being fourth generation border person in that regard, it's always been relevant. And that's why I wrote the book. C.J. Alvarez's book, Borderland, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, is out now from University of Texas Press. Go to thinkbelt.org slash interstitial for more episodes, the transcript, and further reading. Listen and subscribe to Interstitial wherever you get your podcasts. And share the show. Sound design, as always, is by Sam Clapp. I'm David Huber. More next week.